Our scripture this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapters 11 and then chapter 14. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I command you, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And then from chapter 14. As in all the churches of the saints, the woman should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. This is God's word. Wow. I wasn't nervous until Susan started reading the passage, <laughs> right? Happy Mother's Day, right? What, what a great Mother's Day text. Happy Mother's Day, ladies. We love you. Now sit down and be quiet. Let the men talk for a little while. <laughs> uh, I, my favorite part is this is God's word at the end of that. Because, because that just, that, that, that emboldens me. It gives me hope. Because this is, we believe this to be God's word, right? Uh, but these are hard passages, and so you might say, why in the world, why in the world would you, do, would you preach on this? And the answer is cause, because it's there. But why in the world would you do it today? And the answer to that is, um, a year ago when we put the schedule together, we didn't think about Mother's Day being today. So isn't God good? I mean, isn't that a providence that's amazing? And, and, and really, and also, I just, y'all were laughing before I even got started. That's not intimidating at all, right? Uh, you might be here and you might be new to church or new to the thought of Christianity even, and you might say, see, things like that, that's why, that's why I don't read the Bible. That's why I don't like Christianity. I have, what in the world does all of that mean, right? So I do hope, uh, I do hope that we can, we can, you know, 
figure some of these things out together, okay? I, I, I uh, had Ashley read over the sermon before, right? And she said everything was good, so that I feel good. So if I'm offensive, take it up with her, not me, because she said I wasn't. Okay, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. But let, let's, let's try to get into this, okay? I, I, one more thing. I pre- we did, when we were doing a, a series on leadership about two and a half years ago, getting ready to ordain elders and deacons, uh, we preached a similar sermon, and, I w- and literally I was scared to death. And this morning I don't feel quite so scared, so obviously the gospel's taking root in my heart too, because I do think there's some important things for us to look at in this passage together, okay? Let me say it this way. Let me set it up this way. The problem in the passage is over the issue of authority. There is a God-designed chain of command in marriage, in the family, in the church, and even in society that is being ignored by the Corinthians, okay? The issue is not head coverings. We're going to talk about that, but the issue, the, the head coverings were a, verse 10, symbol of authority, Okay, so that some of the women in the Corinthian church refused to wear head coverings when they prophesied or prayed meant, and we're not, see, the hard part of this is we're not exactly sure how, but what we know is that what they meant, they, that they were not doing that meant they were intentionally subverting and challenging the authority of their husbands and the authority of the male leadership in the church. And that some of the men used head coverings, we see that in verses 4 and 7, that some of the men did cover their head meant that they had sinfully abdicated their responsibility and ignored the God-designed chain of command in their homes and in the church, okay? So the problem in the passage is over the issue of authority. But here's the thing. The problem with the passage for us, our problem with the passage is also over the issue of authority. We have an authority problem. We don't like this. It's not in vogue, right? It's out of step with the direction our culture is moving today. And so, and you, and you can feel that. I mean, you were laughing before I could even get up here and start. Because, it, because to read that, Susan's, almost cho- Susan's usually so eloquent, and, right? And she's just choking those things down as she's, as she's reading them, right? She's, because this is, so, this is so hard, and we have a decision to make. Will we be a people who put ourselves under God's word? Or will we stand over it? Right? Do we believe that 1 Corinthians 11 is God's authoritative, infallible, unquestioned word to his people? And if so, will we joyfully and obediently put ourselves under the authority of God's word, even if it means people look at us and think we're strange or backwards or regressive or worse? Okay? And by the way, this is, you know, this is how we know this passage is God's authoritative word. Think about this for a minute. The Apostle Paul wrote to a traditionalist culture that affirmed the authority of men over women. They, the, the culture of St. Paul's day really, if you could boil down their belief, they believed in authority without equality. And so women were considered little more than property. And what, what Paul says in these verses challenges the idea of authority without equality. Look at verses 11 and 12. In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. Okay? And so Paul's challenging the traditionalist ideology of that culture. We live in a very different world. We live in a post-feminist world that affirms the opposite of what the the Apostle Paul's writing to. 
The predominant belief, again, in the first century, Roman culture would have been authority without equality. But our culture believes the opposite. We believe, or or our ideology is, is something like, we believe in equality, but it's an equality without any sense of authority. You know, most people would say you can't have equality if there is authority. Okay, so when we read verses 8 and 9, for man, is not, for man was not made for woman, but woman for man, you know, then we grind our teeth at that, don't we? And Paul's teaching, see, is just as upsetting and challenging to us as it would have been for the first century people he was writing to for almost exactly opposite reasons, and that's one of the reasons I'm convinced it's God's word and it's good. See, it confronts the idolatries and the distortions of every culture. There is a truth being presented to us in these verses that transcends any one culture or cultural expression. Paul affirms both equality and authority. And that means that we, that we can't identify ourselves as traditionalists or as feminists because we're to be something else altogether. And I'm going to do my best to represent that something else this morning. <laughs> As we walk through this passage together. Now there are three things that I want us to talk about. Okay. And, there, and that you'll see the three, the three uh, points in your outline. Uh, we want to talk about headship. Head coverings. And then the head. In other words headship. There's a God designed chain of command in marriage. In the family and church. Even in society. Second head coverings. There are social expressions of this chain of command. That we are to heed. Uh, and that it's very important that we do so. And then third. The head, we want to we end by seeing how Jesus models both sides of headship for us and provides the power for us to be faithful, okay? So the he- headship, head coverings, and the head, let's just walk through this together, all right? And I really was going to try to throw some jokes in for relief, but I thought, nope, you know what, let's just go for it. So this is a great opportunity to get a lot of laughs from you, right? But I'd rather, I'd rather us try to be serious and, and faithful to the text. And so let's, let's just, let's march through it together first. Let's talk about this idea of headship. If you'd look at verse 3. I want you to understand, Paul writes, the head of every man is Christ, the head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now that Greek word, translated head, in all three of those examples, means source or authority. So when we talk about headship, we mean that there's a God-designed chain of command, that just as we are all to live in submission and obedience to Christ as our head, our source, and our authority. So also wives are to live in submission and obedience to their husbands as their head. Now, what headship is not? Okay, let's, let's go there first. Okay, because we could, this can easily be misunderstood and we have to be very careful. When, I, when, we, when we affirm headship, we are not... We are not saying that there's authority without equality. Headship is not authority without equality. Headship doesn't mean that men are superior to women. It does not mean that women exist to serve men, but not vice versa. It does not mean that women aren't allowed to be strong or independent or have their own opinion about things or take real leadership in the family and even in the church. It doesn't mean that women have to be stay-at-home moms and that they can't be breadwinners in the family. There's equality. Let me give you two reasons from the scripture that, that, that absolutely lay down the reality of equality. First, 
there in verse 3 again. The model for the headship of husbands over their wives is the headship of God the Father over Christ. You see that verse 3? The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. The head of Christ is God. That means Jesus lived his life on earth in humble submission and obedience to his Father in heaven. He said things like this. He said, I can do nothing on my own. I can only do what my Father tells me to do. I don't speak unless the Father tells me to speak. Now, if we heard a woman saying this about her husband, it would be disturbing to us, wouldn't it? Well, I can only do what he allows me to do. You know, I can only talk when he tells me I'm allowed to talk. We'd be calling, you know, 911, child and family services. Somebody get in there. Trouble, danger. And yet it's the way Jesus talked about his relationship with his father, okay? But here's the thing. So Jesus expresses a, a, a submission to the headship of God in his life that is so radical that it would make us really uncomfortable if we applied it in other areas of our life. And yet, that does not mean inequality between Jesus and God the Father. That's heresy. I mean, the church in the fourth century settled the issue affirming that the persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, are, this was the wording, the same equal in power and glory and authority. So the Son, even in his submission and obedience to the Father, is not inferior to the Father. That would be heresy. And that means that headship does not imply superiority in any way whatsoever. You with me so far? Second reason from the scripture. Not only that the model for headship, the headship of husbands, is the headship of God the Father, but secondly, the grace of the gospel has destroyed male and female as status markers. Our call to worship in Galatians 3, verses 26 through 28, says this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. Through faith there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. So the grace of the gospel means that Jews are no better than Greeks, that masters and slaves, no matter what their standing might be in society, have equal standing with God. He says that being male or, you know, being female makes no difference. In other words, being male is no advantage over being female. Men are not spiritually superior to women just because they're men. Just ask the women, they know this, right? They're all one, he says. They're all one in Christ Jesus. They all have the same status in Christ Jesus. So, headship does not mean authority without equality. Headship refers to role and function, not priority. Jesus submitted to the Father, not because he was lesser in any way, but because there was a mission, there was an eternal covenantal agreement between the Father, Son, and the Spirit to heal the world of sin and death, And for the sake of the mission going forward, Jesus put himself under God's authority and was submissive and obedient all the way to death on the cross. Right? So headship is not authority without equality. But it's not equality without authority either. There's a clear clear chain of command. Don't make fun. Okay, there's a clear, because this is the distinction that has to be made, that this is why you go to, to seminary and get master's degrees in theology and all those kinds of things. There's a clear chain of command, but there's no ontological hierarchy. 
There's a functional, there's an economic hierarchy, but it's not ontological. It doesn't have to do with who, you know, who, just like it's not, it's not true of the Trinity in its essence, it's true because there's a mission. There is a chain of command, but there is no ontological hierarchy. Men are called to authority and leadership. Women are called to submission and obedience, but that doesn't mean men don't submit and that women can never lead. The man was created first and then the woman, but that doesn't mean that men are number one and women are number two. The man coming first was an indication of his role and his function, not his priority or dignity or worth. But can I just stop and ask one question? Why, why does that feel so threatening? I mean, why does the thought of being number two cause us to shudder the way it does? What's wrong with being number two? See, there's this automatic impulse hardwired into us that causes us to see authority and leadership as positive and superior and submission and obedience as negative and inferior. Why is that? See, now something's being exposed about our hearts. Right, how many times in the Gospels do we see Jesus is, Jesus is talking about going to the death, death at the cross, his humbling himself and coming down to serve, and in the very breath of his, his talking about his obedience and his downward mobility towards the cross, his disciples are fighting over who will ascend and be number one in the kingdom. It's in a picture of the human heart, this desire for ascension, right, that, that, that we would be set apart, that we would be set up as the one over others that is contrary to Jesus' way. And it's what the Bible means by sin. This desire to be number one, not to be number two. Even if God's number one, it's a desire to be number one ahead of him and to make him number two. Because it's the thought of being number two that we can't abide by. Now, think about this. Traditionalist cultural expressions of male headship, whether among Southern evangelicals like ourselves, or the Taliban in Afghanistan, right, that give the impression that men are strong and women are weak, men are smart and women are stupid, somehow men are superior and women are inferior, and that's why women shouldn't vote or shouldn't go to school or shouldn't serve in the military or whatever they're told they shouldn't do. That kind of male dominance has no justification in the Bible whatsoever. The Bible affirms equality. Okay, but the solution isn't feminism, because the agenda of radical feminism isn't equality, it's the reversal of the power structure. And that's what we have right now. Right now in our culture, you know, it, it looks very much the opposite way, that women are strong and men are weak. Women are smart and, and men are stupid. And this, this progressive feminism, it, it, it's about female dominance. And so in both the traditional, conservative, progressive, feminist movements, you see the struggle of the human heart to want to be number one, not number two, expressed either in a push for male dominance or female dominance. And if you go to any schoolyard anywhere at recess, it's still, what's the favorite game to play? Boys against girls. Right? So let me just ask a couple questions. How does then this desire to be number one distort the leadership and the authority that men are called to in their headship? Let me say it again. Think about this. If, if, if this sin, this, this, this sinful desire to be above, not under, to be, you know, to be, um, to be number one in rank and authority and have everybody else under our feet, how does that distort the leadership and the authority that men are called to in their headship? 
We could talk, spend a lot of time talking about that, but I want to move on, okay? It could, it could manifest itself in a pride that is a grabbing for power and a men, men who love to just boss people around who are underneath them. Or it could produce a selfishness that becomes passivity towards the work that God has given to men. But we have to ask, how does this sinful desire to be number one distort the leadership and authority that men are called to in their headship? Another, or you could say it this way, how does, how does men not realizing that in their headship they are also under the headship of Christ distort it? But secondly, how does this desire to be number one and not number two, this sinful urge in our hearts distort the obedience and the submission that women are called to in submitting to those who are their heads, right? How does it produce pushy, demanding, you know, resentful attitudes towards people in authority over you, thinking you could do better than they're doing? That's what you have to ask yourself. And you see, the problem, the problem is we're bumping up against an issue of creation design, What I mean by that is that whenever the Bible talks about male and female gender roles and the functional dynamics of headship, it always goes back to the creation story in the beginning of the book of Genesis at the very beginning of the Bible. And Paul does that here too, verse 8 and 9. He says, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. He means God, and this is what, if you're here and you're not a Christian, here's here's where really the problem lies. We believe God is the creator And if God is the creator, he has made the world to work a certain way, and the design that he's put into the fabric of the world extends all the way to gender roles as well. Adam was created first, then Eve. And this establishes in Paul's mind the man's leadership and authority and the woman's fellowship in these things he's talking about. And if you read the story in Genesis, it's very clear. Um, When evil came into the world... Think about this. Have you ever thought about this? When evil came into the world, it came right at this issue of male leadership. Satan did not tempt Adam. He tempted Eve. And then he used her to tempt Adam. That's what the catechism says, right? And so what do we learn from that? Think about that. Sin came into the world through the doorway of this issue we're talking about this morning. If you don't think it's important, right? He didn't tempt Adam. He went to Eve first and then brought her to Adam. So what do we learn? We learn that there's a certain way God has designed things to work. And men abdicate their leadership and become passive and inattention or and inattentive or When men do that or when women get out in front of their husbands and when they get impatient, try to take the leadership from him, bad things start to happen. That's what Genesis would teach us. But practically, what does this mean for our church? And I don't have a lot of time to deal with this. I've I've, I've dealt with it in the past. You can go look it up. It's in the sermon archives on our website. Or you can call me. Please call me because I I don't have an hour and a half. You have lunch plans, I know, right? We could be here all day, but if you have questions, if this is confusing, if you're wondering what in the world does this mean, you need to call me. Okay, I don't have a lot of time, but we need some clarity. And what I want you to see is in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul forbids women to speak in church. But in 1 Corinthians 11, he says there are women praying and prophesying. So we're caught in a really tough bind, I'll be honest with you, because in 1 Corinthians 11, women were doing more in the expression of the church there in 1 Corinthians 11 than they really even do in our church. And yet in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, don't even let them talk. 
They should ask their husband the questions they have when they're on their way home. So what's the deal? What, what in the world is that dynamic? And all I want to say to you this morning is there must be a specific application in 1 Corinthians 14 that Paul's concerned about. And the commentators, the truth is they're not, they're not really sure. We don't know for sure what Paul's concern is. It can't be that he means that in all cases women shouldn't talk in the church because, again, in 1 Corinthians 11, they're talking, they're prophesying, they're, they're praying, they're doing all these things. So we're not exactly sure what to make of these things. So what do we do? And so here is our official, this is my official statement. Are you ready? Oh, I hope, I hope, this, I hope the elders would say. If not, I'll come back and repent and you can rebuke me later. This is, this is my articulation of how we are going after these things in this church. We believe wholeheartedly in both authority and equality. We believe that God has gifted women for ministry and that they should be free to exercise their gifts without any hindrance, even in the context of this service, with one exception, and that is the authoritative preaching of the word, which is the responsibility that is given to Jonathan and I. However, we live in a culture where male leadership is undergoing a full frontal assault And I don't know if you know, 65% of people who attend church in America are women. Because the church has been feminized. And so we have made a conscious, strategic decision to publicly portray strong male leadership in this church from the front because it's so absent in our culture. That's where we are. Okay? That's our way of applying this idea of headship. Now... Second thing, and you got to call me, you got to text me, you got to email me, we got to talk about that because I realize how radioactive all this stuff is. Now, let's move on. The second thing. The second thing in this passage is not only does Paul deal with this idea of headship, but he also talks about the issue of head covering. So, verses four and five every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And again, verse seven, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. Now, if there is a God-designed chain of command, then both men and women in their approach to God in worship, in their relationships with one another, etc., should be careful to honor the chain of command and not upset it or try to reverse it. That's what, that, that means that, that men, this is the, what I want to say here, that men should embrace and exhibit what is uniquely and distinctively true of masculinity and that women should embrace and exhibit what is uniquely and distinctively true of femininity. I thought one commentator put it perfectly. He said the issue, Paul's concern here in these verses, is gender distinction, not gender subordination. Gender distinction, not gender subordination. Now, see, the feminist movement over the last 40 years has been pushing for equality um, and, and, and it's done a lot of really great work in doing so. But the problem that I have is that the equality that, is def- that the, the feminist movement defines is, is sameness. Equality is defined as sameness. So in order to be equals, men and women must be the same. They must act the same and dress the same and work the same jobs and play the same roles in the family and in society. Equality equals sameness. And what's resulted has been a blurring of masculinity and femininity. And what I want to hopefully help you see from the scripture this morning is that in the Bible, it's the exact opposite. That according to the Bible, men and women are not equals because they are the same. They're equals because in their created design, they are different and complementary to one another. 
So the old catechisms ask the question, how did God create man in his own image? And the answer is always, he created them male and female. After his own image. And that means that the image of God is dependent upon the unique expression of masculinity from men and the unique expression of femininity from women. That there's something about the masculinity of men and the unique, that uniquely communicates part of who God is. And there's something about the femininity of women that does the same thing. And when the lines get blurred between male and female, then the image of God gets blurred. They both have to be there. Does that make sense? And so in the first chapter of Genesis, in the first few chapters, the man is all alone. Then God creates the woman to be his helper. Now don't, right, that is a demeaning word, right? Not he's created her to be the help, the way the book, the help, don't think, right? But that's where we go with that, isn't it? Well, she's the help. Well, isn't that nice? But that word, but that word helper doesn't mean she's number one and he's number, I mean, she's number two and he's number one. The Hebrew word helper doesn't mean lesser. Get this, it means different. The emphasis is on her being complementary to the man, that she was created by God to be strong in areas where he was weak and weak where he was strong, so that together they fit together into one whole. And without one another, they were incomplete. That's the idea. The woman fit the man. She completed him. He needed her because she could do things that he couldn't do. And together, they could accomplish the mission God gave them, but alone they could not. Now, to prove this a little further, this Hebrew word that's translated helper is used over and over again in the Old Testament scriptures to describe God himself and how he comes alongside of his people to help them and to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. See, that's what Genesis is trying to teach, that the man needed the woman's help in the same way that we all need God's help. They were different and unique in their personality and giftings and skill set, and that's the basis for the equality. Now, what's all this business about head coverings? See, this is Paul's way of encouraging the men and the women in the Corinthian church to embrace and exhibit their differences. Paul, this is the part I was a little nervous about that I actually checked. But anyway, Paul, Paul wanted the men in Corinth to be manly. And he wanted the women to be womanly. In the roles they each played within the church and also in the way they went about those roles. So look at verse 4. He says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered, dishonors his head. And this is where, to, to do what I do, it's really frustrating to go to the guys who are supposed to be experts, who've got PhDs and spend a lot of time thinking about these things, and you say, I have no, what in the world does that mean? And I go to them, and all these guys who are a lot smarter than me say, we have no idea what that means. Because the Greek is really, really hard, and we don't speak it for the most part anymore. So it's really unsure, we're really unsure exactly what Paul means. But, but the consensus is, whatever the specifics Paul's concerned about, the men are being feminized. For the men to cover their heads amounts to their abdicating their role of leadership and authority and becoming feminized. And so the covering of the head was a sign of reverence and submission and humbling oneself. It was a submissive posture. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Paul wants the men to, in faith, take up their headship and display a distinct masculinity that images God. He goes on later to say, verse 14, and this is even weirder, isn't it? That if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace. 
Right, look at that verse. Verse 14, does nature not teach itself teach that if a man wears his hair long, it's a disgrace to him? Does that mean everybody ought to, you know, all men ought to cut their hair short? Right, there's something in nature, Paul says, something about the way we've been created that shows there's a difference between men and women. And Paul wants the men to pray and prophesy and lead in such a way that this difference is highlighted. He wants men to be manly, not feminine. And in that day, not so much in our own, because so it's kind of off the table, but in that day for a man to grow his hair long was considered him moving towards a more, more feminine approach. Paul wants the men to be manly, not feminine, to be bold and courageous and strong and full of initiative and leadership, not weak and passive and subdued. Okay, then he goes to the wives in verse 5. And he says, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, which refers to her husband. So here Paul's concern is that when a woman, when, when a woman led in the worship service, she should be careful to do so in a way that displayed her loyalty and submission to her husband. Again, unfortunately it's impossible to be sure of the details, but for whatever reason, the head covering was a way of her expressing her femininity and her unique role and function in relation to her husband. And so for her to pray or to prophesy without her head covered would be seen as her challenging her husband's authority. It would have been a public emasculation of him as the leader of their family. That's what, that's what Paul's very concerned with. So see, Paul wants the women to, in faith, embrace the headship of their husbands and the spiritual leaders in the church and display a distinct femininity. He, he says a woman's long hair is her glory, verse 15. Now again, that doesn't mean all women have to have long hair. It means that a woman, what it means, ladies, please, and moms, as you raise girls and dads, as you raise boys, and it means that a woman's glory, according to Paul here, a woman's glory is the physical and personality traits that display her distinctive femininity. It's the things that make her different from men that are the glory that causes her to live alongside of him as one made in the image of God. And so Paul's concern is that the women in Corinth be womanly, that they look womanly, that they act womanly, that they be modest and virtuous and quietly submissive, not sexually aggressive and willful and demanding, pushy. Okay? So... We need to wrap things up. We've looked at headship. That there's a God-designed chain of command in marriage, the family, the church, even society. That men and women are equal, but each have a unique role and function. Secondly, we talked about head coverings. That both men and women should function in their role in uniquely masculine and feminine ways. And listen, I know this is hard. It's hard, but we're called to be a holy people, distinctive in the way we go about our lives. But it's hard. It takes courage and wisdom to lead. It takes incredible courage and humility and wisdom to follow and submit. And that's why I want to end, and I really only have just a couple things, by briefly talking about the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus uniquely and perfectly fulfilled the role of the one in authority and also the one under authority. So he can help us. See, he can help us. Paul says way back at the beginning, verse... One, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So it's in the imitation of Jesus in the way he functioned in both of these roles that can help us be wise. But also it is the promise that he will give his spirit to us to empower us with courage and to humble us and to make us wise as we try to 
go about these things. So let me just talk to both sides, and then we're done. So where you are called, both men and women, where you are called to a role of leadership and authority, but particularly I'm talking to the men, look to Jesus in faith. Let me ask this question. What did Jesus do with his power and his authority? He possessed all authority in heaven and in earth. And the Bible says, yet he laid it aside to become a servant. So he said of himself in Matthew 20, 28, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Many men, that's headship. That's leadership. Not barking out orders from the couch that you expect those under you to follow. The leadership model in the kingdom of heaven is not the selfish exercise of authority over people, but humble service after the pattern of Jesus the King, very God of very God, full of power and glory and authority, who became nothing because of the great love he had for those he came to save. See, what did Jesus do with his power and authority? And when you answer that question, it should humble you out of any pride or selfishness so that you can become faithful and obedient and have the power you need to move out. But let me ask, where you have been called to the role of obedience and submission, so primarily to the women, I want to just ask, where you've been called to the role of obedience and submission, I want to say, look to Jesus in faith. And let me ask this. (laughs) Ladies, what has Jesus' obedience and submission to the Father's will accomplished for you? And the answer, of course, is it's your salvation. It's your righteousness. It's your hope of heaven. And so would you say then that it was good, that Jesus' submission and obedience to the Father's will for you was good? And if you would say that his obedience and submission for your sake was good, could not his calling you to the same also be good? And then let me make one application to the mothers as we close. Because I know, believe me, ladies, I know, the number one obstacle in mothering is the fathering of the fathers in your life. Nobody laughed. That was supposed to be funny. But ladies and mothers, let me just ask, can you trust God in your husband's leadership of you and your family? See, it's what your kids both the boys and the girls in your home, what they need most from you, moms, is to model delight in God's created design. In Ephesians 5, Paul says to wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. What he means is that that trying to wrestle the leadership away from him is unbelief and fear because your, your submission to him is in reality a submission to God. And so can you trust God's leadership of you and your husband's leadership. Is God good? Is he wise? Then the man you're married to is the perfect husband for you and the perfect father for your children, even when you may disagree. Right? Gosh, this is hard though, isn't it? Believe me, it's hard to stand up here and say these things. So I'm grateful for the promise of the gospel that we can look to Jesus that his obedience and submission led him all the way to the cross to save us. And now he's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us 
and has sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts to be power for us and to help us be wise. And man, let's be honest, those are the very things we need as we try to wrestle with what it means for us to be a people who come under this word and seek uh, to be obedient to it for the sake of God's great name. And so can we pray that he would come and complete that work in us? Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that there is much about this that is uncomfortable and confusing. Uh, that, that it is ripe for us to be um, angry and um, frustrated or for someone to say, yes, but you just don't know, you don't know the reality of my circumstance or for, for us to, to, um, to have too low an opinion of what a man's role is. And so uh, after a man has abdicated his leadership for a woman to, in the name of obedience, continue to come underneath a man that's abusive or hurtful to her. And so there's just so many ways so many applications of these things that we're unable to touch on in 35 minutes on a Sunday morning. And so I just, I cry out and beg that you would help to make us a people who are wise. Thank you for the leadership, both men and women in this church, that we can go to if we have questions or needs. And I pray that you would put a spirit of wisdom upon those people as well. Thank you for our elders who lead us and who have authority over us. I pray that you help those men to be faithful in the execution of their office, that they would lead as men who have come to serve and not to be served, Uh, so that we could be a holy people, a people for your name and for your glory that would display to a watching world um, a a different way, a way that's in, in keeping with the creation design, the chain of command that's embedded in the creation uh, that, that if you bump up against it, it's like trying to pour water into the gasoline tank of a car. It doesn't work. So, Father, give us great humility. Give us great courage. Give us great strength. Lord Jesus, thank you for the way you modeled both headship and being under headship. And may you send the Spirit in our hearts to form the same kind of submissive, reverent obedience that you displayed and the same kind of patient, loving, serving leadership that you displayed. So that your shalom might be known among us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The work, uh, the work of mothering takes incredible faith. Amen. Anybody? Are you guys alive or have I completely? Is anybody coming next week? I need to know ahead of time. Okay. Uh, and the work, whether, whether it is to be one who has been given a position of authority and leadership or submission and obedience or a mix of those two things in different directions, it just what we need is an incredible faith. Uh, to produce an obedience and keeping with that faith. And that's why I'm grateful to sing songs about the gospel of Jesus at the end because it's the gospel that not only is uh, the pattern that we are to imitate, but it's the gospel that provides the power for us where we need it. Uh, And so receive this benediction then as God's promise, uh, no matter what station you might be uh, under in life, that he is with you and that he's working in you and through you and in the people around you uh, to do good to you. And that's, that's, that's the hope you need uh, to be able to be obedient. So receive the benediction and have a, a great Mother's Day today, ladies. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.